If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we'll continue our study through the book of Acts. Maybe you don't have a Bible, you can pull it up on your phone or whatever device you might have. And uh, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And I think to title the message and to put it before us now and again throughout the sermon, the wait is over, it's time to get going. The wait is over, it's time to get going. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the only historical sequel we have to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different authors writing from four different perspectives on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Matthew to a Jewish audience, Mark to a suffering Roman audience, it appears, Luke to a, to a greater audience, Gentile audience, about Christ being the Savior of all men, John For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. These tell us of the birth, the life, the ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and even ascension of Jesus into heaven. But what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven? The book of Acts tells us. It's the historical sequel to the Gospels. You remember from a couple of weeks ago in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, Luke begins the this book of Acts, with Jesus risen from the dead, spending time with his disciples, giving them final instructions, and then ascending into heaven. Those final instructions were to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise. You see it in verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so that was part of the instructions. Go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Spirit. And they, knowing that the promise of the Spirit was a sign of the Messianic age and the kingdom, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he answered them in verses 7 and 8, it's not for you to know the times of the epics which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. The priority is to be a witness and the place is in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the remotest parts. And then we saw last week in verse 12 and following, they did just as Jesus said. They went back to Jerusalem and they waited. We looked at five characteristics of this community of believers. They were, number one, they had an allegiance for King Jesus. They had had an experience with the risen Lord. And I believe that's why they were gathering together. And secondly, they were of one mind. They knew what Jesus had called them to be and to do. And they were devoted to prayer in verse 14. And they were submitted to the scripture in verse 16 and following. And they were sobered by the reality of what had happened to Judas Iscariot. But now in chapter 2, that which they were waiting for comes. The wait is over. It's time to get going. 
we're going to see that the Holy Spirit has come, empowering you and me for mission, and that opposition can be expected. Let's take a look in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Pentecost is one of the feasts within the Israelite calendar, Passover. It was when our Lord Jesus died. And then the very next day begins the week of unleavened bread. And then on that Sunday following is the feast of first fruits. And then 50 days later, Pentecost, 50 days later, is the feast of the ingathering of the harvest. And here we have, this is the day that God in his sovereignty has chosen to give his spirit. And with the giving of his spirit, who is going to bring life, we will begin to see the ingathering of God's people. Next week, it'll be 3,000 souls, and it will continue to grow as the gospel continues to progress. So when the day of Pentecost had come, this is 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. We're going to, they are going to hear a sound, and they're going to see a sight, and they're going to experience a sign. And I think the sound of the rushing wind and the sight of the tongues of fire distributing themselves are here to tell us that the Holy Spirit has come and that God is among His people. A rushing wind. Throughout the Scripture, God is, the Spirit of God is seen as the breath or the wind of God. In Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God, the breath, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the surface of the deep. Over that chaos the early verses of Genesis, the Spirit of God, the Ruach, the breath of God, hovering over the surface of the deep to bring forth life and order out of that chaos. God will form Adam from the dust of the ground and he will breathe into him the breath, the Ruach of life. In John chapter 3, the Spirit of God is compared to a wind that blows where it wishes. It's unpredictable, but it brings forth life. And here they are, and they hear the sound of this rushing wind. The Spirit of God is coming among the people. And in verse 2, And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. So not only did they hear this sound like a rushing wind, but then God makes his presence very visible to them through a fire which is coming down from heaven. And apparently this fire then breaks up, if you will, and distributes on each one of the believers that was there. We know from chapter 1, about 120 of them were gathered together. And just like wind or breath 
indicates the presence of God throughout Scripture, so too does fire. It's always associated, not always, but often associated with divine activity. If you remember the story of Moses, that God appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush. You know, when God led his people out of Egypt, he led them by night by a pillar of fire. Whenever Elijah was dueling it out with the prophets of Baal, seeing who was the true God, Baal or the God of Israel, he called upon the God of Israel and fire came down and consumed the altar. Fire is associated with God in the calling of Ezekiel to his office of prophecy in Deuteronomy 4 and in Deuteronomy 9. Our God is a consuming fire. And so I believe, verse 1, this sound of a rushing wind and this appearance of fire was clear indication to them and to us that God was now coming to dwell among his people. That what they had been waiting for and Jesus had commanded them to wait for had now come. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. At the end of the gospel of Luke, Jesus said, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And we saw in chapter 1 that they were to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise and now here the promise has come. If we were to take a step back, a broad step back, we might could think about things this way. Our God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God eternally existing in three persons. God the Son, God the, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Always and forever in perfect unity and delight in one another. And working out their plan for the ages. But If you read the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation... There is a sense in which God the Father, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to take it back, but, but God the Father's role throughout the Old Testament, God the Son does not take upon human flesh until the beginning of the New Testament, if you will. And we see the Spirit of God at work throughout the Old Testament, but not nearly in ways in which we will see Him at work after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So, we might say that the Old Testament is an emphasis upon God the Father. Let me take that back because God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and God the Father are one and have always been. But then you come in the fullness of time, the eternal Son of God left heaven's glory and took to himself humanity. He became one of us. We're about to celebrate it at Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. God becomes one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. and We beheld his glory. And so as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
God the Father is there. And God the Spirit is there. But the story is of God the Son who's come to accomplish the will of His Father. The redemption for His people. And He lives and He dies and He rises. And He gives those final instructions and then He ascends. And then in Acts chapter 2, in fulfillment of promise, He sends the Holy Spirit. And now since this day for the last 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit of God has been doing His good work in the world among God's people. The era of the Spirit, we might call it. He's come, John Stott notes, that this is the final act of Jesus, if you will. Jesus was born, and we celebrate that at Christmas. Jesus died, and we remember that on Good Friday. Jesus rose from the dead. We celebrate Easter Sunday. Jesus then ascended into heaven. Some Christian traditions celebrate this. Sadly, maybe we don't. Ascension Thursday, when Jesus ascended back into the, to the Father's right hand. And then what's called Whit Sunday is the celebration of Jesus Christ giving the Holy Spirit to his people. Here it is. They heard the sound. They saw the sight. The Spirit of God has come. And so these early believers in chapter 1 had to wait for the Spirit. Jesus said, He had been with you, He will be in you. And they had to wait for that in Acts chapter 2. It is not the case for you and for me. Ever since this day in Acts chapter 2, whenever a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes to reside in them in an instant. He does His work of convicting us of sin before we come to faith in Christ, Jesus said that the Spirit of God is in the world convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. If you are a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you owe it to the Holy Spirit of God who began to work in your life and began to convict you of your sin, convict you of your lack of righteousness, convict you of the coming judgment. And Paul tells us in Titus chapter 2 that our regeneration, our coming to life in Jesus is a result of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And when you and I come to put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God does a number of things. He indwells us. Immediately in in that moment of being reconciled to God, the Holy Spirit of God comes to reside in his people. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us that he seals us for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit does. He is given as a pledge of our inheritance, a seal for the coming day. It's as if God with his Holy Spirit marks us as his and says, you're mine to the very end. He also, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us, he baptizes us into the body of Christ. He also... When we come to faith in Jesus, he gifts us with spiritual gifts. 
And so in an instant, so he works before we come to faith in Christ and when we come to faith in Christ. And then as we walk with Christ, the Holy Spirit of God leads us and he fills us and he empowers us for the life that he calls us to. We're going to see that now with this sign. So the Holy Spirit has come. The wait is over. And now verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now this is not going to be a full-fledged sermon on the gift of tongues. That would have to be for another time and another day. There is so much to dig into Acts chapter 2 is quite clear, it appears to me. But so much to dig into in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Maybe one of these days, one of these years, we'll dig into that. But if you'd like to take me to lunch and talk about it, I'm all in. You pay, I'll pray, and we can talk about the gift of tongues. So many good men and good women take a look at the gift of tongues here in Acts chapter 2, and they take a look at it in 1 Corinthians, and they say Acts, Acts chapter 2 is so clear, Acts or Corinthians 12, 13, 14, not so clear. So I think I need to interpret the, what's not so clear by that which is very clear, and so they equate the gift of tongues in Acts 2 with Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. There are other good men and good women with just as good of hearts taking a look at these scriptures and say, I'm not so sure what's going on in Acts chapter 2 is exactly the same thing that's going on in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. These gifts are different. And so again, it would take a lot of digging in for us to come to any conclusions if we could. But here it's going to be clear, and if we have time, I'll say a bit more about the controversy, if you will, in just a bit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. We're about to see this gift of tongues was the supernatural ability to speak a foreign language that you had never learned before. It was not a prayer language. It was not an ecstatic utterance. This was the ability, the supernatural ability to speak another foreign language that you had never learned. We had a couple come in this morning. I'm not sure if they're still here. A man and his wife, they spoke Chinese, zero English. And so I, I was having even a hard time saying hello the gift of tongues in that context would have been me beginning to speak in Chinese. I'm telling you, that would have been supernatural. Verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. So these were Jewish people from the diaspora. They didn't live within Israel. They lived in the dispersion outside the land of Israel. But they had come for Pentecost, or it could be that they were born outside the land, had grown up outside the land, and had now moved back to the land. We're not exactly sure, but here they were in Jerusalem. Devout, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, 
the crowd came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. So people who are in Jerusalem, but who had probably been born outside the land and grown up outside the land among these people groups, and we're about to see from the east to the west, who would have had a native tongue different from Hebrew or even Aramaic, and they're going to hear these believers speaking in their language. And they were, verse 7, amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these speaking Galileans? They're saying, listen, we know the Galileans. They're not that smart. And yet here are these Galileans speaking languages that they've never learned and never known. can imagine them being able to trill their R's. That's what just comes to mind. Because I can't trill my R's. When I try to speak Spanish, you know, when you say carro, I can't do that. And there's lots of different sounds to languages that you and I just can't make. One of the fascinating things is we, we support Greg and Beth Ann Carlson, Wycliffe Bible uh, missionaries who spent 20 years on the island of Tana, learning the language of North Tana, putting it on paper, and then translating the Bible, but talking with them about their Wycliffe friends all over the world, and talking with Greg, I just have a, a kick doing it because it's so fascinating. Hey, Greg, what kind of sounds is the human tongue able to make that I just can't make? And there are languages out there where, where they click their sounds, their guttural Anyway, this was an amazing miracle. These are just Galilean folks. Verse 8, how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, that's out in the east. Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, kind of in the center, if you will. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya down south and around Cyrene. And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, at least out west was Rome. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. What does this mean? God gives his spirit and a sign along with it of his people speaking languages that they had never known or learned. I'm not exactly sure the gift of tongues in this context and in the Corinthian context can be hard to get to the bottom of. But here's what I think was going on here. We're going to take this message to the nations. Jesus had just told them, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. Isaiah had prophesied about this in a little bit different context. But he had said that 
that whenever Israel would hear foreign languages, it would be an act of judgment against them. And in Isaiah 28, the context was that the Assyrians came in and defeated them. And the Assyrians came in with their own language that was different than Hebrew, different from Aramaic. And so when this foreign language was spoken among them, it was a sign of God's judgment upon the nation. One of the things that we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is going to be continual rejection by the nation of Israel. And in light of their rejection, the gospel going to the Gentiles, to the nations. I wonder if, if that's not what God is hinting at here. That his people... And Peter's going to get into part of the explanation of it last, next week. His people had experienced Jesus and all of his miracles, and yet they had rejected him and crucified him and put him on a cross. And now these different languages maybe is a sign of their judgment, of their unbelief, and of the reality that God is now going to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. One of the things we know is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon his people in the book of Acts, they proclaim his word. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Early on in the Gospel of Luke, we see this hinted at as Elizabeth and Zacharias, the mama and the daddy of John the Baptist, were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when Elizabeth was filled, she gave forth her song of praise. And when Zacharias was filled, he gave forth his song of praise. When these are filled with the Spirit, they proclaim at the end of verse 11, the mighty deeds of God. In Acts chapter 4, Peter is going to be filled with the Spirit and he's going to proclaim very powerfully and boldly that Jesus is the only way to God. Paul will be promised the filling of the Spirit in Acts, in Acts 9 and in Acts 13 when he is filled with the Spirit, he speaks with great courage and boldness on his first missionary journey. And so, if we might back up a little bit and say that the Spirit of God has come empowering you and me for mission. The Spirit comes and they are empowered to proclaim the mighty deeds of God. The Spirit of God has come to you and to me. And one of his main aims, it's not his only aim, but one of his main aims is to empower you and me, to equip you and me, to encourage you and me as we seek to live on mission with Jesus. Now, maybe we'll, we'll come back to this again, but it's at least interesting. Every time I teach the book of Acts up at the Kanakuk Institute, and I, 
I do it every year up in January, February. We get to Acts chapter 2 and the hands come up. Right? These are young men and women right out of college. And uh, they always want to know about the gift of tongues. And I said, listen, I'm going to give you my best answer. But I still scratch my head over it. But this is what I share with them every year. And through the feedback that I've gotten, it's been very, very helpful to them. There was a book written many, many years ago called Are the Miraculous Gifts for Today? Miraculous gifts like prophecy, depending on how you interpret New Testament prophecy, um, healing, the gift of healing, the gift of miracles, um, the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Are those miraculous gifts for today? And this book was a four views book. Four different views. There's this view, and this author got about 30 pages, and then there's three other views, and those three guys got about a few pages to respond to him. And then this view, he gets about 30 pages, and the others get to respond and, and the like. And so it's a really good way to go about it. But here are the four general views of these miraculous gifts today. Pentecostal, charismatic view. The Pentecostal movement began in the early 1900s. And generally, it is the view that whenever a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, yes, the Spirit of God comes to dwell within them. But what needs to be sought is a second blessing of the Spirit, which they would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So it is good that one has come to faith in Jesus, but what you need is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to have a second experience. And with that baptism of the Holy Spirit, generally within Pentecostalism, you will then speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, it's evidence that you haven't had this experience of the baptism of the Spirit. And in some of its maybe more tough stances, if you haven't had that experience and speak in tongues, it may mean that you are not saved. So that's the early 1900s, and coming out of the Pentecostal movement, they started their own seminaries, they started their own denominations, like the Assemblies of God and the like. So Pentecostal charismatic. The charismatic movement, 50s, 60s, even 70s, these were folks coming out of the Pentecostal movement who were then going into mainline denominations, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, even Catholic churches, seeing themselves as salt and light, going into, in their estimation, these dead churches when it came to the Spirit, trying to bring life. It was called the charismatic movement. And they may have backed off a little bit on the theology of the second blessing and that, that you must speak in tongues, but maybe not a whole lot. I can remember as a kid being at First Baptist Church Plano. And uh, just one Sunday out of nowhere. And, and listen, at First Baptist Church Plano, nobody raised their hands during worship. You know, you just didn't do that. You sang like this, just about. But one Sunday out of nowhere, there was a group of people up front that all of a sudden their hands were up and they were swaying back and forth. And I thought, good night, mama, what is this? And... Uh, I won't tell you the pastor's name, but he's the one who led me to Jesus and baptized me. He was awesome. Uh, but he put, a, he put a squash on it real quick. 
And the very next week, that, that charismatic group that was trying to come into First Baptist Church Plano and be a salt and light of the Spirit of God, I think he said essentially, listen, I'm going to have to give an account for the way that I lead First Baptist Church Plano. We're not going to have it. And so they didn't come back. But that, that's the Pentecostal charismatic movement. That these miraculous gifts of the Spirit are indeed for today and that you ought to pursue them. And in some strains of it, if you do not speak in tongues, it may be evidence that you are not saved. Pentecostal charismatic. In other words, some people call it first wave, second wave, because the next position over is called third wave or continuationism. This is men and women who, as they take a look at the scriptures, would understand that whenever a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes to reside within them and baptizes them into the body of Christ and that there is not a second blessing to be sought. But, maybe that's the wrong word, they also see, though, or would understand that all the gifts described in the New Testament, even these miraculous gifts of prophecy, depending on how you interpret it, healing, miracles, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, that these continue even in the New Testament church today. Continuationism or third wave. First wave, the second wave, and third wave. This is 80s, 90s. Um, now, here's the interesting thing about the third wave movement or the continuation movement, at least interest, interesting as far as I'm concerned. Bunches of my heroes are in this camp. Um, Sam Storms is in this camp. Wayne Grudem probably wrote the most influential systematic theological book, theology book in the last 20 years. It's used in seminaries all over the world. Wayne Grudem is wonderful. He's in this camp. Um, John Piper would be in this third wave continuationist camp. Um, a lot of the Acts 29 movement of guys, Matt Chandler and those guys, lot of, lots of them are in this third wave camp. That these gifts that are described in the New Testament are for the church today. Okay? So Pentecostal charismatic, third wave it's often associated with the vineyard movement, if you're familiar with vineyard. There's a vineyard church here in Katy, pastored by one of my best buddies in town, Jeff Bynum. Wonderful brother. And he and I have had lunch one day, and I said, all right, buddy, let's talk about your difference. Your, your, your different, you and my, and our differences. How would you and I be different? And we talked about these sorts of things. I love Jeff Bynum. He's in this camp. Pentecostal, charismatic, third wave. Third view is called open but cautious. These are men, women who come to the scriptures and say, I cannot find clear evidence in the scripture that these miraculous gifts have ceased and that they're no longer to be for the church today. So I'm open to it. But boy, I'm really cautious. 
because I've got some biblical reasons, I've got some theological reasons, I've got some historical reasons that I would throw into it all, and, and I've got some experiential reasons, some of the things you see on TV, or maybe some of the things you've experienced related to Benny Hinn and the like, just, just completely turns you off. So you can get real cautious. I'm open to it because I can't, can't point you to a verse, but I've got some good reasons, I think, to be cautious. A guy named Robert Sosi uh, wrote that position. The final position is called cessationism. It comes from the word ceased. That those miraculous gifts ceased at the end of the first century when John Generally, folks would tie it to the end of the biblical canon. So when the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, that final book of the New Testament, and that John, the last apostle, died, that those gifts, those miraculous gifts that were given in their, as they would say, for the attestation of Christ and his apostles, that when that attesting work of those miracles alongside their ministry was done, then those gifts were done. I grew up in First Baptist Church of Plano, which was cessationist. I went on to the University of North Texas and began to attend Denton Bible Church with Pastor Tom Nelson, and it is as strong cessationist as you can imagine. Went on to Dallas Theological Seminary, and at least historically, Dallas Seminary is a cessationist seminary. They teach that these gifts have ceased. And so my tradition really leans me toward that way. When I was in seminary, I had to do a book. I had to do a book report on this book I'm talking about and these four, four views. And in my paper, I proposed a fifth view. Pentecostal charismatic, third wave vineyard, open but cautious, cessationist, cautious but open. I wanted to throw caution up front. And it probably had a lot to do with where I had come from and the tradition that I had grown up in. If I had to choose between these four, I'm open but cautious. Like I said, tons of my heroes are here. Of course, lots of my heroes are over here too. So I'm kind of caught in the middle. I hope what you hear me say is that I, I don't have a dogmatic answer. I do not want to be as dogmatic as the tradition I grew up in. I just don't think the scripture is clear enough. I also, I don't see it over here. The need for a second blessing. The, the assumption that all of God's people will speak in tongues. I just don't see that. Somewhere in the middle. Now, you could press on me, and you would you you would do well. You, I wouldn't have any defense. You said, Mitch, okay, you're open, but practically around here, it feels pretty cessationist. And I'd say you got me. Probably so. If 
if someone were to begin to speak in tongues in our worship service, we would, I don't know what we would do. It's never happened. Um, we would probably, I don't know. One of the things I appreciate about these guys is that they're saying, we believe these gifts continue in the new, throughout the church period. We see no evidence that they've ceased. But let's be doggedly biblical with how they're practiced. And so I guess if someone were to stand and speak in tongues, we'd probably say, okay, anybody got an interpretation? And we'd, then we'd probably go to lunch and we'd have a talk, you know? Not really sure how that would play out. Um, so I'm just telling you where I'm at. And again, you can take me to lunch and we can talk some more about it. The Spirit of God has come. And He empowered them. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. And guess what? The Holy Spirit came, empowered them to speak of the mighty things of God. In verse 12, They, the crowd, continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. They're drunk. Close with this. It's time to go. This Just this morning in my office, looking over this, I pulled out one of the greatest gifts in all my life that I have is a, is a Bible from my pastor at Denton Bible Church, Tom Nelson. Whenever Tara and I left Denton to move to Little Rock to go train in Little Rock to go plant Fellowship Bible Church of Jonesboro, um, before we left town, I said, Tom, I want to go to breakfast with you, and I want one of your Bibles. And we met at Homestead Restaurant, and sure enough, that, that Saturday morning, the very day that Tara and I drove to Little Rock and left Denton, he brought me one of his Bibles. And he goes through at least one Bible every year, and he marks it all up. And, and so I got one of his Bibles, and he gave me a little note on the inside, and it was great. So every once in a while, I'll open up his Bible and just see what notes he's put in a particular passage. So I opened up to this one. And right under verse 13, he had written the beginning of a sad story. This is the beginning of a theme of unbelief that will run throughout the book. Of opposition to the people of God, filled with His Spirit, proclaiming His Word. Y'all are drunk. Y'all are turning the world upside down. Throw them in prison. Flog them. Beat them. Speak no more in this name. It'll be a theme over and over and over again throughout the book. There will be some who will hear. And their eyes, by the grace of God, will be open and they will receive Christ and give their life to Him. But there will be others who will oppose at every turn. The Spirit of God has come, empowering you and me for mission. And opposition can be expected. Here's just the first hint of it. If I was going to Give us one final word. The wait is over. 
it's time to get going. There's no place for you and me to sit at home and say, well, I'm just waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Then I'll get out and live on mission with Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has come to you. You have received the Spirit. The wait is over. It's time to get going. And so I might challenge you as I'm challenging myself this week. Invite someone, an unchurched friend or neighbor, to come with you to Redeemer next week. We're going to look at a good passage. The gospel will be preached. But you say, I'm scared. I don't know if I can do it. That's the very reason why God poured forth His Holy Spirit into your life and mine. Is to empower us to do something that in and of our own strength we couldn't do. The Spirit of God is with you. He's at work in your neighborhood. He's at work in your workplace. He's at work in your world. And He's calling you and me into an exciting life on mission with Him, empowered by His very presence. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, our Savior who came and lived and died and rose, who is at your right hand right now. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit. Your son ascended and then he poured forth the very person of God the Holy Spirit, into the lives of His people. We thank You. We pray that as we turn our attention to this book over the weeks and months to come, and we see over and over and over again the Holy Spirit of God at work in the lives of His people, that You might open our eyes and our hearts to what the Holy Spirit can do in us and through us. And I pray that we might leave here today I'm excited to know that your presence is with us through the Spirit. And we might go out with boldness, with courage, with expectancy and anticipation. Lord, I pray the neighbors, the friends that we might engage this week, that they would be open to an invitation to join a friend at church. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would be working in those men, those women, young and old, in their hearts this week. And as, as those who come next week, as they hear the word of God, you would do an awesome and a merciful work in their lives. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.